Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's get it going. Hey, everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers, and it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession over 100 years ago. So now, let's step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, I got to tell you, lots of fans are making it known how much they're enjoying your new hidden history lessons that you're now doing in each stud cast. You're bringing to wrestling podcast subjects that have never been discussed before on any podcast that I'm aware of. Things that concerned everybody from wrestlers to owners to fans that very few wrestling podcasts expose. Well, you know, uh, that's probably because very few people in the wrestling business and practically no fans had any idea how much was going on basically behind the scenes and what made wrestling, you know, uh, that's kind of what made wrestling a unique business. Uh, I benefited greatly from growing up in it, uh, starting out with uh, numerous discussions with my grandfather, who started in professional wrestling in 1924. And uh, speaking of that, Dave, uh, I think you just covered it, man, uh, we, since he started in 1924, uh, now you can uh, change your introduction a little bit. Uh, you just did. Uh, <laughs> you must be ahead of me, man, because now we're actually more than 100 years in the sport. We're now at 101 years. That's a great point, Stud. I, I, I did make that change. I kind of anticipated this was going to be happening. We had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago. This is going to be your fourth Hidden history lesson, by the way, I think you said this one is going to be about one of the worst mistakes made by wrestling owners to push for state boxing and wrestling commissions. Last studcast, you talked about swapping out some talent, basically giving us a Booker's lesson, which I really enjoyed. This time, it sounds like we're going to be discussing an owner's lesson, maybe. Yeah, that's correct. I think, uh, you know, we're going to be... uh Begin a deep dive, basically, into how, when, and where boxing and wrestling commissions started. And I'm sad to say my grandfather, Roy Welch, was responsible for many of them in the Deep South. And I first heard of boxing and wrestling commissions when I was about 12 years old. My grandfather used to take me with him on Monday afternoons when we'd go and visit. Sometimes we spent a great deal of time in the summer when we were out of school, Rob and I. Uh, with my grandfather and on his dairy. And uh, on the Monday afternoons back in the 1950s, uh, 
from, uh, you know, he lived in Yorkville, Tennessee. His dairy was there, and uh, he would go on Monday nights to Memphis. It was about 100 miles south uh, driving, you know. But uh, when he <laughs> for the trip with Roy, it was 100 miles, but we'd make it in about an hour because he was driving 100 miles <laughs> the whole trip, right? Wow. I mean, he was rolling all the time. So it only took about an hour to get there, and uh, and we'd go to the live wrestling event that night. So in a hundred mile trip, basically he changed from a dairy farmer into a wrestling company owner. <laughs> All right, is he responsible for you having the ability to be successful in other businesses later in life after finishing your wrestling career? Because it's obvious that you uh, you kind of branched out a little, like you did with hockey teams and even ADT security business. Well, I really, I never thought about it that way, Dave. Uh, you know, my, my father was pretty good at making money in other ways too, other than just wrestling. But, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it had, it may have had some effect on me for sure. <laughs> All right. What about Robert and Jimmy golden? Are, are they just pretty boys or <laughs> did they go too? uh, didn't Jimmy and his mother live with your grandfather for a while? Yeah, sure did. Jimmy did there uh, with his mother. Uh, once uh, his mother and got divorced from their father. And uh, yeah, so uh, Roy would take me with him. But, uh, you know, <laughs> so he didn't he didn't much like to go with Rob and Jimmy. So uh, so maybe one of the first times <laughs> he went, you know, uh, they went, uh, you know, one of the first times he ever took us. He took all three of us and and they were a little younger than I was, and they were a little harder to control than I was. And uh, so every time we went, uh, Roy, uh, after that first time, Roy said, you know, he never said it to me, but uh, he let them know. You know, he, he every time after that, Roy kind of got rid of Robert and Jimmy before we left. So my, my grandfather was a bit of a crazy guy, man. Unlike anything most people had ever seen, I can guarantee you that. And, and he took care of this task of getting Rob and Jimmy out of the car in a very unique way, you know. So they, this was back when we were all kids, right, uh, 10, 12 years old, and uh, they both had BB guns. And, and when he could get his hands on one of those BB guns, he'd start shooting them with their own guns, right? And if it was inside the house, sometimes they'd get under the dining room table, as an example. They'd run and try to hide. And then, you know, if they did, he'd just sit down on the floor and he'd just start popping them, man, shooting them. <laughs> <laughs> pow, pow. And they would scream and scream. And then they couldn't take any more. They'd usually uh, run out the door and they'd go to the, climb the nearest de tree to the house <laughs> most of the time. So, uh. Roy had hurt his hip in wrestling many years before, and he walked on a cane uh, during this time frame. And he would he'd follow him to the tree, and they'd be perched up in the top of it, or you know. And then he'd sit down on the ground, and he'd he'd go the routine again. He'd just start shooting them, <laughs> <laughs> leg, back, arm, <laughs> until they couldn't take it anymore, and they'd finally jump out of the tree. And then they'd start running away from the house and uh, back toward the pasture because he had a big dairy farm uh, back to where the cows were mm -hmm. staying most of the time. <laughs> so, so then we'd go to his Cadillac, uh, you know, and he'd go there. And the first thing he'd do is get in the glove compartment and he'd get something with a little more power. He always had a pistol. 
in his glove compartment. And <laughs> most times he had the gun filled with blanks. So uh, he'd pull that gun out and he'd start firing at them until they were almost out of sight. And then he would God. say to me, then he'd say, uh, okay, get in the car now. We can go. <laughs> so so were the boys a little skittish growing up? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, you can only imagine. <laughs> It's like all of a sudden they think they've been hit by uh, I don't I don't know maybe uh, a, a yellow jacket or something. All right, you're not making this stuff up, right? So he actually fired a pistol at his grandsons Robert and Jimmy. Yeah, he certainly did. Man. Uh, okay, and, uh, you know, and it had most of the time it had blanks in it. You know, sometimes it would have a live shell in it, but he knew it was, and he didn't shoot very close to him then, but. You know, uh, so, uh, and he'd do that to wrestlers, too. I mean, it wasn't just Rob and Jimmy. He would—he had that pistol, and he'd take it out at any time. You never know when he was going to shoot you with it. <laughs> so so it was on these Monday night trips to Memphis, man, where I really learned so much about the wrestling business as a young boy. So I was on one of those trips with my grandfather that he told me the story of how he started and built his territory. And the mistake that he made later, creating the first boxing and wrestling commissions, uh, he by trying to protect his business from the competition in all the cities that he was going to be running across the southern United States, he needed some way to control who was going to be in it and trying to get in it. Wow. All right. You already have my attention, Stud. But before you tell us about boxing and wrestling commissions, tell us how he built his wrestling company. Well, man, that's a very interesting story. You know, and to, the answer to that question, Dave, I guess, is why he he needed these state-run athletic commissions because of the way he built this wrestling empire. And and I already, you know, uh, I already said he's a little bit crazy, but an old uh, wrestling shooter, and uh, gosh, he had the ultimate respect for the wrestling business, and. And, and, and along with that, he had absolutely no fear of any man. I mean, he was, he was a bad dude. And in 1924, he, he started wrestling on, on, in one of the first ever wrestling territories in the country, in Columbus, Ohio. And then by 1930, after six years of wrestling there, he took his skills and his respect for the business and what he had learned about running the territory in those six years and left and went into the state of Tennessee to start his own companies. And he started to run some towns uh, with wrestlers. Uh, he took some guys from the Ohio Territory, became his friends during that six years, and uh, some of them went with him to Tennessee and became wrestlers in, the, in his first territory. So there was no organized professional wrestling in, in uh, that part of the country back in uh, 1936. As you could imagine, 1930, man, uh, you know, early, early, uh, in the 30s, and uh, there was only a few random places that it occasionally had matches, with usually only four wrestlers on a card. And uh, he wanted rest, you know, he wanted fans to see only the best. And since he'd been trained by one of the greatest shooters of all time, the original Dutch Mantel, he shut down all wrestling that he considered that wasn't going to be as good as his own wrestling, you know. So so we, and the way he shut it down is he'd find one of these wrestling matches, see it advertised, hear about it, and he would go to the building, and uh, and he'd just shove his way in. He didn't even buy a ticket. He, I asked him, 
You know, you, you didn't buy a ticket? No, so why would I buy a ticket? <laughs> you know, and he said he would first then uh, watch the matches to see if any of the guys that were wrestling had knew anything about wrestling, you know, and if they were any good at all. And then as soon as the, the event was over, he'd go to the dressing room uh, before those guys left the dressing room. And uh, he didn't open the door. He said, uh, I'd kick the door open to the dressing room. And I asked him, about, <laughs> why would you do that? And he said, I wanted to, you know, set the tone. I want to set the tone here. So, and then he said, you know, since the cards only had four wrestlings on it, wrestlers on it, there were two guys in each of the two dressing rooms. And they usually had separate dressing rooms. And he said, first thing I would do is introduce myself, tell them who I was. And then he said, then I would tell them that you guys are no longer wrestlers. Uh, unless, of course, you want to wrestle for me. <laughs> and then if he said, yeah, you don't like that idea, uh, you know, about not wrestling for me uh, and, uh, and, 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 and thinking you're still going to wrestle, he says, we'll just take care of that problem right now. He had a... So then he told him, you know, he said, he said, if I catch any of you boys uh, wrestling again, he goes, uh, there's going to be a price to be paid, man. And uh, so he said, now you can pack your bags. And he says, uh, he said, and you can consider your wrestling careers over forever. And then he would visit the other dressing room, give him the same story. And then, uh, and then and after uh, the running the wrestlers off, he would find the guy that ran the show. And he would tell that guy, he said, I would tell him that, hey, this is your last wrestling show. And he says, if, if I ever hear you running a wrestling show again, he goes, uh, you're not going to like what's going to happen to you, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. So did, did he ever have anyone that wasn't happy to hear that and really like, okay, I want a piece of you. Come on. That's what I asked him, Dave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but early on in these Memphis trips, he'd asked me a question. One of the first trips we made that was really good, he said, uh, you know, the, this is kind of an answer to that question. He said, he asked, he said, he asked me if I knew what to do. He said, oh, if you're fighting somebody, boy, and he goes, uh, and you can't beat him, and you see that he's going to beat you. And uh, he said, uh, <laughs> he said, do you know what to do? And I said, uh, no, uh, wh what would you do? He said, <laughs> he said, well, he says, uh, he said, if I couldn't beat him, he said, I'd eat him. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? He said, if I couldn't beat him, I'd eat him. Eat him. And, he <laughs> said, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'd get one finger in my mouth and I'd eat that finger off. And then I'd eat that hand off and then the arm off. And then until I'd eat him until he was all gone. <laughs> <laughs> So many of those old shooters that came with him to Tennessee in 1930, they were still working for him uh, during this time frame. Now it's in the 1950s, it's 20 years later, right? And, uh, and some of them worked in his office in Nashville. And uh, so in Memphis, I'd ask those guys, then they were usually around handling back doors or handling jobs for Roy, you know, uh, I was, I'd ask him, you know, uh, because I wanted to know after getting that story, you know, I said, well, how mean a guy was Roy? And every one of them said he was the toughest human they'd ever seen. They said, wow. <laughs> they said, so hopefully that answers your question about the, why he's asking me uh, 
what are you going to do? Yeah, I think it definitely answered my question. All right, so is that how he built a 10-state territory? Well, that was only the beginning. I mean, he didn't have to do that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But that's all in way he knew how to handle things. You know, he he was a little heavy-handed, I guess you would call it. And uh, so word got out (laughs) quick about him. You know, it didn't take long for anybody who was thinking about running a rusting deal to find out that, hey, this guy named Roy Welch is going to show up and, uh, you know, you better, you better not do this. So so these tough wrestlers, uh, you know, uh, if there was a tough wrestler and a good wrestler in that part of the country, they made a point of finding him then. And they would ask him, can I go to work for you? Because uh, you, because after he had done this a while, he had no competition. There wasn't anybody running wrestling in the state of Tennessee but mm-hmm. Roy. You know, and uh, so and that's kind of where the state boxing and wrestling commissions come in. Wow. So kind of amazing yet frightening information, Ron. Thanks for that a lot. All right. So now now we know about how he got the business started. So why, when, where and maybe how did he start to establish boxing and wrestling commissions? Well, let's start this man with uh, with your first question about why. Uh, why do why did he want to have a boxing and wrestling commission? You know, so he told me early on. You know, and I asked him about it. I said, you know, and uh, he said he realized he couldn't continue to control the entire state, uh, and much less expand into the other states he wanted to in the south. Uh, using those strong arm tactics, you know, he said, uh, he was very honest. He said, you know, if I did it that way, he said, I might end up in jail. Right? So, so he wanted to maintain, <laughs> maintain control of the entire state and be the only promoter of wrestling in the state. So he came up with a legal way to do it. And at the same time, it was a way to make himself more powerful uh, than just a wrestling promoter. So that idea was by, uh, you know, getting himself involved in politics. And as far as when and where, let's, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to get to those for you. Roy arrived in Tennessee, like I said, in 1930. By 1935, he pretty much controlled all wrestling in Tennessee. Uh, in 1935, he came up with this idea to get the state of Tennessee involved rather than his company, and let the state police his territory, you know. In that same year, he went to the governor of Tennessee, a guy named Hill McAllister, Hmm. and he proposed a plan for boxing and wrestling commissions. His plan for the state was to create his boxing and wrestling commission to oversee both the sports. And, uh, you know, he explained to the governor of that state, you know, the state would receive a small portion of the proceeds from each event, Uh, All the boxers, the wrestlers, the referees, and the promoters would all have to buy a license to operate an event or compete in one in the state of Tennessee. So uh, then Roy recommended, which is really smart, uh, that the commissions be controlled by three members, all of which were going to be represented by one of the three, uh, the Veterans of Foreign Affairs, Veterans of Foreign Wars Organization, American Legion, the Disabled Veterans of America. He got the veterans involved, and they're going to get some support as well. Wow, that is a cool deal. Your grandfather, really quite the man. He was dealing directly with a governor and recommending 
the three controlling members of the commission that he proposed be associated with foreign war organizations. Sounds like he had a big heart, but it wasn't all a big heart, Dave. Hmm. You know, in return, in the beginning of these commissions, he was going to receive the state's protection of his company's monopoly, basically. And uh, when it came to uh, who could run wrestling in the state of Tennessee. So he, you know, it was it was a benefit him big time as well. So as time went on, man, he expanded his wrestling company into other states, other southern states. And this first boxing and wrestling commission that he set up in Tennessee, that was the template for all those other states as time went on there as he expanded his territory. As the expansion of the territory grew, he became more political, especially when it came to donations, right? And especially in gubernatorial elections. He liked to deal with the governors, right? So many times uh, he backed both candidates just in case. You know, hey, if this guy loses, I want to make sure I get the other guy involved too. And he didn't not know I'm giving to both. So things were going to change. All this started to change in about the 1950s in a bad way for everybody working in the business as time went by. Uh, wrestling companies lost their clout, you know, uh, or their, and, and his influence. He lost a little of his poets because obviously the governors were changing. They, they were being reelected and he was going through this process and, uh, and he knew them less well than he knew the first guys. And so uh, it, was going to, it was going to be a big change that, that was going to come later on. The athletic commissions basically we're going to end up ruling the day. Hmm. So continuing to raise the percentage, you know, they started to raise the percentage that they gate of the gate that they got. They were receiving uh, the, from the events and uh, the wrestlers licenses went up and the promoters licenses went up. And, and so in the next stud cast, we're going to pick this story up uh, about in the 1960s. By that time, promoters all over the country for looking for ways to behead these commission monsters, man. Uh, that's what basically he had done is created a monster here. <laughs> and uh, and not only him, but that was picked up by a whole lot of other promoters around the country. And uh, now most of the country had boxing and wrestling commissions. I absolutely love these hidden history lessons. And I think I also remember back in early Studcast where you were talking about your grandfather. He was friends with a lot of governors and he ended up with a lot of badges that he could keep in the car. And if he was ever pulled over, you told a lot of stories about that in the past. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, so that, that's exactly what he did. Uh, I mean, he had relationships with governors in every state <laughs> and, uh, and they all gave him badges. Yeah. He was, he was because he gave him a pretty <laughs> substantial contribution, I'd say yeah. to getting reelected. <laughs> and uh, so he got a, he got the, uh, the clout from that. And, uh, so uh, he was a he was a very rare dude, man. Yeah, which is why he could uh, kind of tool down the highway at about 100 miles an hour, and nobody really bothered him. Listen, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one to be totally unaware of these state athletic commissions. I can't wait to hear how the territories dealt with them. That's going to be interesting too. And before we go to the break, can you give us the card? Let's check out the card for Mobile, Alabama. I think the date is going to be. Tuesday, January 22nd, 1980. I sure can, my man. Uh, it was a triple main event card. Uh, two of those main events were not going to be announced 
until the TV show, which was just days before the events. Uh, and then nobody would know what that card was until the television show happened, the actual card. Uh, so the opening match was Terry Orndorff versus Ted Oates. Eddie Boulder was wrestling against the unmasked at this point, Super Pro, Randy Rose. He no longer had his mask because he had lost it, and the wrestling pro had beat him in the mask versus mask match. Then the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, was going to be facing another guy, a new guy, mm -hmm. a great wrestler, man, Big Bill Dromo. Mm -hmm. uh, and then for the Southeastern Tag Belts, uh, the new champions, Rob and I, uh, we had just won them the week before. We're going to announce who we were going to defend against on the upcoming TV show. And in a United States Junior Heavyweight Championship match, there's going to be a loser. Loser of the match is going to leave Southeastern. You had the champion, the great Mephisto, defending against the former champion, Tony Charles. And then the last match was for the Southeastern Championship. There was a no disqualification match that had to have a winner. Basically, somebody had to win this. The, the, the likelihood of the belt changing hands pretty good in those situations. Uh, Joe LeDuc was facing the champion Mongolian Stomper managed by the great Mephisto. A really, really good card right there. It had a new arrival who was a really a respected name in Southern wrestling, Big Bill Dromo, making his debut, plus three title matches, one of which was a loser leaves Southeastern match. So a lot of questions on that card. And when we come back after the break, we're going to dive in a little deeper into the TV show that promoted it and set the whole thing up. That is coming up when this studcast continues in a moment. Ask the Stud 13, the question and answer show exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. You know what, folks? It may have been a day or two late due to the weather in Tennessee, but it's well worth the wait. The 13th in the series is full of great questions. And when that happens, it sets the stud up for fantastic answers. Nobody does question and answer shows better than Ron. Having come from the oldest and largest wrestling family on the planet gives him the leverage of a great wrist lock on history. All 13 of these Ask the Stud shows are classics. If you've never checked them out, this one is a great place to start. Ask the Stud 13 on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in the second half of this Studcast, which I'm so far really good as we get it going, and we're going to get deeper in this second half. This one is number 334. It's called LaDuke and Stomper at it again and i'm pretty sure that's what we're about to approach so how did the tv show three days before the mobile card you talked about before the break on saturday january 19th 1980 how did that tv show open up well it opened up with rob and i and uh, we were the newly won southeastern tag uh, champions uh, we had the belts at the set with us uh, we were the charlie platt and he congratulated us, and uh, we got a standing ovation from the studio audience. And uh, then Charlie showed the video of how we became champions five days earlier in Mobile, Alabama, uh, winning the loser league. We had a loser of the fall, had to leave Southeastern match with the Mongolians, who were the champions on that, uh, on that uh, card the week before. And the younger Mongolian, the Stomper's son, lost the match. 
And uh, he had already at this point left the Gulf Coast. He left almost immediately after that match. So Charlie asked, uh, you know, who was going to be our choice to defend our belts against the, for the first time? So we told him, uh, you know, <laughs> and we kind of both giggled and laughed a little bit and said, uh, I was, well, I thought well, you might have figured that out, Charlie. You know, it's, uh, we told him, uh, we want to wrestle the two guys that injured our dad three weeks earlier in the two-ring battle royal. Same two guys that we beat uh, two weeks ago for the Mobile uh, $10,000 battle royal money. You know, the cowards from Tennessee, I think that's what we call them. And uh, so Charlie said, you know, oh, he says, now I know exactly who you're talking about. And uh, and he said, uh, so since you're already here with me at the city, I'd like to invite both of you to stay with me because those two guys are in the upcoming TV match. So the bell was rung, and uh, then the studio exploded in blue and booze. I mean, they, they, these two guys had some real heat, man. And uh, Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, man, they popped out of the Hills dressing room. And uh, Jimmy and Norvell, they wasted no time on their opponents, man. They, they beat both of them, and they used what was becoming their favorite finish move, <laughs> the pile driver. <laughs> the same move they hurt our dad with three yeah. weeks earlier on New Year's Day in 1980. Yeah, wow. All right, so a huge amount of animosity between the four of you. I bet you guys had some great matches with each other. So how about the second TV match? Let's move to that one. Okay, the, the second segment began with the wrestling pro at the set with Charlie. And he told Charlie he was there to put an end to this, at this point, pretty long-running feud between him and uh, and he called him the punk named Randy Rose, <laughs> he did, which was I'm sure Rose had to hate that and uh, you know and that he'd been calling the you know he says that's the punk that's been calling himself the super pro, and uh, he said to you know he said the guy I finally unmasked Charlie, so this guy he's, he, everybody knows who he is now, so they watched the end of what the pro referred to as a. There's a misunderstanding between him and the young punk that uh, he'd kind of put behind him now, and, uh, and he was going to move on to bigger and better competition. And he pointed out, uh, you know, he says, look, I, my next match here is with a guy named Big Bill Dromo, who's a big star in the South. And uh, so, you know, he's and he said something about, you know, he said, uh, Big Bill Dromo is a highly respected wrestler, unlike Randy Rose, who uh, <laughs> hadn't made a name for himself and never will. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, 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 so uh, the, the, oh, Randy, he was getting a little upset with this kind of interview. So the video kind of showed the pro. Uh, it showed the pro putting the super pro. Uh, that was uh, Randy before he was unmasked uh, to sleep again, as he had done with him several times in several matches. And uh, then he pulled his mask off before he woke him up. Right? He didn't make it. He didn't take a chance that he might not get his mask off. If he woke him up. So he beat him with a sleeper hold. He pulled the mask off of him and then he woke him up. And uh, then the pro, you know, kind of set him up against his knee and uh, let everybody in the building see his face. And, uh, you know, then the announcer announced that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the <laughs> super pro is Randy Rose, right? <laughs> so, so the video continued uh, because uh, after the pro left the ring, as soon as, as soon as he took his mask off and he let everybody see his face, he left the ring. And uh, so Randy Rose, uh, 
he got up and he grabbed the microphone, the building microphone in, in Mobile, and he promised that, hey, this ain't over yet between me and you, man, talking to the racing pro. And uh, so Charlie asked the pro, you know, he says, hey, would you like to stay and see the next match? He goes, it's with the unmasked Randy Rose, the guy <laughs> that you unmasked, right? <laughs> and, and the pro told Charlie, he said, uh, he said, no, he said, I'm finished with that guy. <laughs> so he really, really dug him big time, man, during this, during that second segment, Bill, leading up to the match. So you just answered, I think you just answered my next question, Ron, about who was in the next match. So I can't believe Randy Rose thought he could ever unmask the pro. Yeah, well, you know, obviously uh, it didn't work for him. So, uh, but Randy at this point was really mad. I mean, he'd listened to that interview and, uh, you know, watching on the, watching on the screen in the back. And, uh, you know, he, he was, he, he was, uh, he had to be upset. The pro just blew him off, man. Like he was nobody making fun of him basically. So, uh, when Rose went to the ring, man, he was mad. And, uh, and so his opponent in that match, he paid the price for the pro upsetting Randy Rose and, Wow, Rose left his opponent. Uh, he he left him unconscious, man. He hit him with one of those clotheslines, a really stiff one coming off the ropes. And uh, and then uh, when the guy's laying there and he'd pinned him, uh, he got up, Rose, and he screamed at Charlie over there at the set by himself because the pro didn't want to be there. And he said, you could tell that old mask, man. He said, the next one of these clotheslines <laughs> is going to be for him. <laughs> Okay, so who was in the personality profile? Well, it was with the extremely popular, at this point, Joe LaDuke, man. And uh, you could tell how strong he was over when he came out of the dressing room and he went to the set with Charlie. I mean, the studio crowd, they just came alive, man. It's like they loved him. They were just really into him at this point. And Joe looked like, man, he'd been in a car wreck, man. He had one black eye. And his forehead was covered with homemade butterfly stitches, which he liked to do because he he, he got such bad cuts on his head, he would he had to go to the hospital and get them sewed up. So he started making his own stitches, butterfly stitches, you know, and uh, and it saved him going to the hospital. And, you know, and it, it lasted pretty good for him. Uh, they would stay in there for a little bit, you know, so. And it saved him from having to get real stitches put into his head every time him and the Stomper had these matches in the ring. They were just, holy <laughs> bloodbath. They were just cutting each other. It was horrible. Wow. So uh, seeing him like that, uh, it reminded me. It took me back to 1977 when that first war between Joe and the Stomper was going on, the one that started in Tennessee with the blockbusting incident and all that stuff. So, uh, Joe was a really smart baby face, man. Uh, he was always so humble and respectful to everybody, but especially the fans. He was, they, that, that's why they loved him so much. He spent all of his time when he went into buildings, leaving the dressing room and out there uh, patting the fans on the back and, uh, you know, just uh, going through the buildings and, and, and shaking hands. He was just, it was because, you know, he realized that, I, you know, he wasn't a very pretty guy. And actually, he was a very scary-looking dude, man, to be a babyface. So he began this profile with kind of a proof of what I just said, you know. 
He started off by apologizing to Charlie uh, for losing his cool last week. And, uh, and they had that big fight that, with the Mongolian stomper that went all over the studio. And he made a, a, a point specifically of mentioning, you know, I really was sorry, Charlie, for, I want to apologize for slamming the stomper's face into your desk, you know, in the front of your set there. And uh, he's also, Charlie, you know, uh, he said, I hope it. Nothing like that's going to ever happen again. So uh, Charlie said after seeing the blockbusting uh, here on the TV uh, two weeks earlier, he said he understood why Joe was so angry with the stomp. Made a lot of sense uh, the way that happened and all that blockbusting went down. And he told Joe he hoped he didn't mind, but he wanted to show some of what happened on the end of last week's TV show. For the fans that might have missed last week's TV show, since Joe had already apologized for it. So then Charlie called for the director to run a short piece of the video, and it showed how violent and quickly, man, uh, these incidents between these two guys could occur, and it got totally out of control. And as soon as the video was over, Joe apologized again for what had happened. So then the discussions uh, changed entirely. Uh, and it got on to Joe's second chance. In this upcoming week, he's going to get this second chance at the Southeastern Championship for the Mongolian Stopper. And it's going to be in a special no-disqualification match for the belt. And uh, Joe thanked Southeastern Commissioner Don Curtis, especially after what had happened last week on TV, for allowing him a second chance at a title. You know, he's almost, you know, he said, I don't, I can't, I'm happy I got the first chance, but after what happened last week, he's going to give me a second chance. Can't hardly believe it, but uh, he said, I'm going to make this match count, man. I'm going to win this championship belt. So he admitted he was not the most skillful wrestler, and because of what had happened between him and the Mongolian Stomper years ago, they were never going to have a clean, so I'm not going to ever have a clean wrestling match against a Mongolian stopper, you know, and fans must know that. They come, they see it, you know, and he thanked them. He thanked the fans for their continued support and said he hoped to be back next week with the Southeastern belt on, and, uh, and he left the set with a wow, uh, which was a tremendous roar of applause. He was over. Oh, good deal. Another great personality profile. So how about the next match? Who was, who was set for that one? Well, the subject of the personality profile was on the next one, and that was a Mongolian stomper. And, uh, wow, did he make an entrance. I mean, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> when, the, when it came time for the profile to be over, he barely got Joe out of the way, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Charlie changed sets. And, uh, and just immediately by the time Charlie had gotten on the set, uh, here came the stomper, and he didn't come opening the door and coming out of the door. He busted out of the dressing room, and he headed for you know where, man, the studio audience. And <laughs> wow, here it was, man, total pandemonium, man, as usual. Uh, they weren't expecting him, right? <laughs> so, so it was even worse, and that made it even more chaotic. And uh, so then the great Mephisto, he came, and rather than going after the stomper, he just went straight into the ring carrying the stomper's belt. And he stood there smiling and, and as, a, as his animal out there wreaked havoc in the studio, man. And uh, then the stomper, you know, uh, uh, he didn't look any better than Joe LaDuke in the personality profile. I mean, those two guys had these savage matches. And uh, 
I'd never, I hadn't seen anything like it since Tennessee. And the ones that were in the Gulf Coast, I think maybe were just as bad or worse. So the Stomper's head was just as bad as Joe Duke's was, you know. And he also had this big bruise on the right side of his chest. It looked like somebody hit him with a sledgehammer, man. It was a big old monster bruise. So uh, they were just killing each other. So it certainly didn't slow him down, though. I mean, he showed no mercy on his opponent, I can tell you that. Another one that had to be carried from the ring when it was over. God. Okay, so it sounds like another wild TV. How about the last TV match? Well, it started with the U, the new United States uh, Junior Heavyweight Champion, Tony Charles. He was at the set with Charlie. And, uh, and Tony was extremely upset that he had won the belt back from the great Mephisto five days earlier in Mobile. Uh, but he didn't, uh, you know... He still didn't have his belt, and Charlie asked the director to run the video to show the fans what had happened and why he didn't have his belt. So it clearly showed that uh, Tony Charles beat the great Mephisto in the middle of the ring, and uh, the Expo Expo Hall crowd in Mobile there, which was probably over 5,000 as normal, uh, they were just, uh, they exploded, man, uh, with the fact that Tony had beat the Mephisto. Uh, Tony was so excited in the video after he won the belt, that he wanted to put the belt on before he left the ring. So he was struggling to get the belt on because when you put those things behind you and they had snaps on them, you couldn't hardly snap the snaps without some help. So the referee saw that he was trying to put the belt on and he went over to help him. And, uh, you know, so, and that was a big mistake because Mephisto was still in the ring. So when the referee and Tony on the far side of the ring, they had their back turned to Mephisto, and they're trying to put the belt on. Mephisto ran across the ring, and he hit the referee in the back with a huge knee, and that drove uh, the referee headfirst into Tony, and both of them went down. Mephisto then put Tony uh, in his camel clutch hole, man, and he oh. put his hands around Tony's throat for leverage, and he choked him out. And uh, then uh, as soon as Tony uh, went out, Uh, He grabbed the belt and he took the belt to the dressing room. So Tony asked him, you know, uh, to stop the video. (laughs) He had seen all he could of it, you know. And he said he had spoken to Don Curtis, Southeastern Commissioner, days early. And he said, I asked Don Curtis if I could have a loser leave Southeastern match with Mephisto. uh, And the winner is going to win the belt and keep the belt. uh, And I want to settle this once and for all. And, uh, he said, but I want to get my belt back, you know. And he said, uh, I haven't heard anything from Don Curtis about my request. Uh, has he talked to you, Charlie? And uh, so, <laughs> so he, he was very concerned about the belt. Wow. All right. So Mephisto had not returned the United States Junior heavyweight belt five days later. So, But did you think he was going to be able to keep it? <laughs> I don't, did, did he yeah, think I that? don't really know the answer to that one day right. you know, I mean, uh, remember you know he, he was already set to leave the territory and go to work somewhere else when I talked to him a couple of weeks earlier and uh, we worked out a date for him to leave Southeastern and uh, and it certainly wouldn't have been the first time a wrestler stole a belt from a wrestling company and left the territory so uh, Charlie had uh, Tony's answer from Don Curtis and uh, he told Tony, he says, you are going to get that loser leave match with Mephisto that you asked uh, asked for. And uh, he told Tony, uh, you know, 
You'll be getting the match. And uh, he says, as a matter of fact, Mephisto's in the next TV match. So uh, Tony had the United States, the junior heavyweight champion. Uh, he had been on and off. He had owned that belt for more than three years. And I guess, you know, that was long enough for Tony to feel kind of like uh, this belt is, is mine. It really belonged to him. He, and you got the feeling that way when you were a champion and you wore that same belt for a long time. Uh, it meant a lot to you. So Mephisto's opponent was already in the ring. And uh, when Mephisto came out of the dressing room, Tony's sitting there with Charlie. And, uh, and Mephisto's wearing the United States Junior Heavyweight belt. And he got in the ring with it. And that was it. Tony Charles went nuts. He just charged the ring. And he started uh, literally beating the hell out of Mephisto. <laughs> was like, wow. This is a shoot. And uh, Mephisto, his opponent for the TV match, he instantly realized, well, this ain't a good place for me to be, and so did the TV announcer. Both of those guys left the ring. They ran. And then, uh, and then uh, Tony was, uh, you know, a, a great shooter from England. Uh, he was a bad son of a gun. He knew how to hurt you, man. And Mephisto wanted no part of Tony, really, <laughs> that's for sure. And so the, the Mongolian stomper, because Mephisto's his manager at this point, he hit the ring, and he tried to pull Tony off of Mephisto. And everybody in the studio by this point is on their feet. And, uh, you know, as soon as Tony got the uh, belt, you know, uh, Joe LaDuca was watching um, me in the dressing room. With uh, You know, we're back in the dressing room. We're watching on the monitor uh, what's going on, you know. And uh, so uh, Tony, as soon as he got the belt off of Mephisto, and he, <laughs> he felt like he had kicked his butt enough, he left the ring. So uh, now you got uh, the Mongolian stomper in there working, starting to uh, starting to go for Tony. And uh, so uh, it's getting kind of wild there. So you see, uh, so uh, so Mephisto, you know, he ran to the dressing room like a scalded dog. Well, Tony's down, uh, and uh, Stomper's uh, kicking the kicking him pretty good and stomping him pretty good. And uh, Joe LaDuke's back in the dressing room with me and the other baby faces, <laughs> and he sees what's going on, and he don't ask anything. He just bolts right straight out of the dressing room, and he goes right straight for the Stomper. So now you got the you know uh, we I, I looked at the rest of the guys and I go uh, oh no we can't have another one of these like we had last week right. So I said, we got to go get this, got to go get him, guys. And uh, so we went after uh, LaDuke. And then the other dressing room guys came to the ring because they, you know, they saw what was going on and they were trying to get the stomper. And uh, so, wow, we ended up with a, this time the fight might have been even wilder than the week before where <laughs> Joe was already apologizing. Yeah, it kind of sounds like Tony Charles was really took that personally uh, about the belt. I mean, uh, he was pretty ticked off was he yeah yeah i soon found out after we, this was all over that you know and he, he came and apologized to me and he told me you know uh he said yeah, i just want you to know you know i'm a, <laughs> i lost my temper i'm sorry ron and I, you know and i almost started a battle royal out there he goes uh, you know and so i later so later i spoke with mephisto about it you know and and he was happy to hear that tony was kind of okay about it because he was going to be wrestling him again the next week. And he was like, <laughs> oh, boy, I don't want to have I don't want to have him mad, man. And they were going to be in a loser-lead town match. So. 
So a really crazy TV show this one was. So what happened in Mobile? Let's go to Tuesday, January 22nd, 1980. Well, Terry Orndorff, younger brother, a Hall of Famer man, Paul Orndorff, uh, won his match with Ted Oates. Randy Rose, uh, the former super pro, uh, won his match over Eddie Boulder. Uh, the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, beat Big Bill Dromo. And in the Southeastern Tag Championship match, Rob and I lost by disqualification to Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin. And uh, we got disqualified because they, uh, right at the, in the, in the match, uh, probably 15 minutes into the match, they end up throwing Rob over the top rope on the concrete twice without the referee seeing it either time. So, uh, you know, and then Rob finally was able to get back into the ring, and he finally got to me, and, wow, I was mad about, you know, uh, he's already taken two bumps on the concrete, and we haven't got our hand raised. And so uh, I instantly uh, went in the ring, and and I grabbed Golden, and I threw him over the top rope. Then I went and grabbed Norvell and threw him over the top rope. And uh, so... The referee, what's he going to do? He didn't see them do it to Rob, but he just saw me do it to them, and he disqualified me and Rob. And their their hands got raised, but they couldn't win the belts because it was a no-disqualification match. Then in the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship match between the champion at this point, Tony Charles, the champion, he's got his belt back, and the former champion, Great Mephisto, uh, Tony Charles uh, retained his, his belt, and uh, Great Mephisto was out of the territory. But in the last match, now Mephisto's still the manager of the Mongolian Stomper. He's lost this match, but he in the last match, he went to the ring for the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship match between the champion Stomper against, against uh, Joe LaDuke. And it was going to be the second time that Joe LaDuke had an opportunity to win the title. And this time, Joe LaDuke, uh, ready to give us give us give his all, man, to become the Southeastern Gulf Coast champion. Uh, mm-hmm. He had told everybody he was going to do that. Yeah. Promised them in the profile, I'm going to be wearing the belt. Uh, so mm-hmm. he was in total control of this match, and the building was on its feet, man. And uh, Joe grabbed his bear hug on the Mongol, and when he did, instead of just putting the bear hug on him, he drove him back into the ring corner. But the referee was standing in that ring corner, and he got squashed by that. Uh, Joe just pulverized it, drove the Mongolian tomper on top of him, and uh, that his referee went down. His referee was hurt. Uh, Mephisto, at that point, came in the ring. And uh, for the first time since he'd been in Southeastern, I knew that he was capable of doing this. He, he threw one, a fireball, man. He waved one of those deals. He lit the fire. He threw it, and he threw it at the back of Joe's head. Joe wow. still had Stomper in the uh, in the bear hug, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> and then Joe must have been had to had it. Uh, you could see this fire coming from the corner of his eye because he ducked the fire, and the Stomper saw it coming because he was looking straight at Mephisto, and uh, he tried to duck too. But he couldn't get ducked totally because he was still in the bear hook. And some of those flames dropped on the stomper's back. So Joe nailed Mephisto, uh, knocked him out of the ring. Uh, stomper was rolling on the mat, trying to get his the back, his back out, the, the fire put out on his back. And, uh, and uh, you know, the referee, had, uh, 
He didn't see the fireball. He had not seen any of this. He did, but uh, you know, referee got up. The uh, Duke uh, covered Stomper, and the referee uh, counted the champion out, which meant uh, Joe LeDuc won that match. Uh, building exploded Expo Hall. Man, wow. those fans there were crazy anyway. And uh, Joe uh, hand was raised, and the belt was presented to him. And uh, when he left the ring, uh, the crowd at ringside. They came to the ring and took him off the ring and put him on their shoulders and carried Joe LaDuke to the dressing room on their shoulders. Man, those were the days in wrestling. You can't, that doesn't happen today in wrestling. That's, uh, that's 100% for sure, but that's amazing that the crowd could hover to the ring and then pick the wrestler up and take him back to the dressing room. That is amazing. And a great way to finish an incredible night of wrestling, stud. Well, it wasn't over yet, Dave. Oh. I mean, uh, you know, as the crowd carried LeDuc back to the dressing room, the great Mephisto had crawled back into the ring. And uh, and and then there he stood face to face with the Mongolian stomper, who he had at this point burned, and he'd lost, it caused him to get beat, right? Uh, so, and uh, caused him to lose his southeastern belt. So, uh then came the biggest pop of the night. The Mongolian stomper tore into the great Mephisto. And, uh, and now you, <laughs> you couldn't hear yourself <laughs> thinking that building, man. And, you know, so they finally, you know, he did everything he could think of to Mephisto. And the fans loved every bit of it. <laughs> they were so into it. And uh, then on the end, he... Uh, he had him on his back, and he ran to the ropes, and he stomped him right in the face. And, Whoa. And they left him laying out. He knocked him cold, and, uh, and uh, Stomper left the ring and went to the dressing room. Some of the fans were cheering for the Stomper, but uh, everybody uh, crowded up around the ring, and there's Mephisto laying there out cold. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that happen before. Mephisto, in his last night in Southeastern, lost a loser's loser leaves match. He threw fire. He burned his own champion and was left laying in the ring by his own man. Yeah. What a finish. Oh boy. I'm a Southeastern <laughs> fan. Uh, we, wouldn't, we're never going to see the great Mephisto again. That was the last time they ever saw the great Mephisto. And, and you're right, Dave, there's not much worse way to go out than that. Yeah. Yeah. They, these folks really love you. Bye-bye. All right, what a tremendous stud cast this has been. So what was the attendance? Lay it out for us in these three major cities. Well, business obviously was on fire. I mean, uh, two of the three buildings were almost full, and the third in Mobile, uh, as usual, it not only sold out, but it turned fans away again. Uh, this was three weeks in a row now that these buildings had been uh, practically all full mm -hmm. and all three of these Alabama cities averaged about 5,000 fans each for the third week in a row too. Wow. That is awesome. That is so much fun. All right, listen, I'm sorry, but it looks like we're not going to have enough time for a learning tree question. And Ron, I, I have to ask a couple of questions though, with the attendance numbers you were drawing Southeastern Gulf coast had to be one of the best territories out there during this time. So how are you going to replace the young Mongol from last week and the great Mephisto from this stud cast 
and keep drawing big crowds like you were. And and one last last question: Where are we riding next week? Let's see you answer all that. All right. So let me see if I can piece this together for you. All right. Okay. So uh, so our attendance numbers. Let's start with the attendance uh, in the southeastern Gulf Coast territories. Uh, you had the three major cities, obviously, and uh, all three of them were very strong at this point in uh, drawing and drawing, and especially uh, when you consider uh, the, the crowds and the biggest market. And I was looking back uh, uh, in 1980, at, at Lawrence, one of the populations of these three cities in Alabama that were in this Gulf Coast territory. Uh, Mobile in 1980 had just under 300,000 population. Montgomery had less than 100,000, and Dothan had less than 50,000 people living there. And, uh, and that Dothan was running on a weekly basis, and uh, up there drawing around 5,000 people per show, Dothan, Alabama had to undoubtedly be the best drawing wrestling city per population in the world. <laughs> no doubt about it at this point, right? And, uh, and as a comparison... With Knoxville, Knoxville's 1980 population was 175,000. It was almost exactly as same as the population of Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And at this same time in 1980, uh, the new owners there in Knoxville were drawing uh, less than they were drawing less than half of what Montgomery was bringing in every wow. year. Wow! Wow! As far you know as how we. Uh, I we're going to replace the Stomper's son and the great Mephisto uh, and keep drawing crowds, which is a good question. How, how, how are we going to do that? So I'm going to start phase one of that answer next week. Uh, it's going to be in next week's show. Uh, uh, we're going to get things started with somebody else. And we're going to be riding man with a new player next week, basically. Uh, it's kind of like a football team. We're going to add a star, man. Uh, the kind of player that's going to hold up the houses, man. And when he arrives, uh, he's going to eat mad to him. <laughs> it's wow. Gonna, it's a, it could be even better, man. And and we're also going to be returning to the State Boxing and Wrestling Commission's national story. I've been uh, telling now for a couple of weeks, and uh, this is going to be uh, this is the second part. Uh, uh, we'll be talking about the second part of it here. Uh, Roy began to, at this point, see the mistake he had made uh, as these uh, state-run boxing and wrestling commissions began to take more control in the 1950s and 1960s especially. And uh, these commission stories, man, I think fans are going to really love them. There's going to be a few more of them. We're going to end up talking about uh, how uh, Vince McMahon dealt with his situation with boxing and wrestling commissions. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, that uh, changed wrestling entirely. Wow. So uh, there's a lot more history coming with the Boxing and Wrestling Commission stuff. And then hopefully, Dave, we'll have a time enough for enough another learning tree question next week. Oh, cool deal. I tell you what, this has been an extremely interesting studcast again this week. I'm fascinated by your grandfather, all the things that he, he was into, and his may, maybe, maybe having made a mistake – creating his own monster with the boxing and wrestling commissions in many states. So I can't wait to hear who is going to take the place of two heel stars and keep the attendance ball rolling, as you said. And hopefully we can have a learning tree question to plug in next week. 
All right, folks, you know the deal. You find Ron on Facebook. He's there all the time. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there. Automatically become friends with a living legend. Exact same thing on Twitter or X. Find him at Ron Fuller Welch and follow him there, too. And everything he posts on Facebook is also posted on Twitter. I, that's right, isn't it, Ron? You you post everything on both? Yes. Certainly uh, good deal. So if you're on one, you're, you get the information, but why not be on both? Check out the fantastic website, tnstud.com. You want to talk about Loaded Down? Yeah, tnstud.com. This studcast is going to be there with every studcast ever done. Shop the Stud Store, where you get 43 Super Studcasts, four different 8x10 photos, the thrilling Lion novel, Brutus, personally autographed to you, and T-shirts still on sale, only $15.99, and boom, free shipping, just like that. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind. Get the best in old-school wrestling. Go to YouTube in the search bar, put in Southeastern Rewind. It's the first one that pops up. Find 386 videos and counting the last 111 stud cast 52 stud stories 95 short rides with the stud and now maybe you've already seen it and if you hadn't it's a great place to start 13 great ask the stud question and answer shows number 13 is now there all exclusively on youtube southeastern rewind rewind it is the best deal in old school wrestling. All right. Any final words, Ron? Well, you know, as always, I want to thank all those that waited patiently last week. I apologize, man. We had some big ice storms and snow and everything up here in my part of the country. And we had to hold off on being able to record uh, the Aston Stud number 13. And I finally got it recorded. And now, as you mentioned, it's uh, up on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind channel. And, I just want to thank everybody for being patient with me. And uh, thanks for the great comments that I receive every day from all the fans on all the social media sites that I have. And please take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.